Hi, welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. Today, we're going to talk about winning digital customers, the antidote to irrelevance. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I believe that leadership creates a strategic advantage and is a key lever for creating the world we want to inhabit. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also a fellow with the International Leadership Association. With me on the show today is Howard Tiersky. Howard's the author of Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance. So Howard, this is such an important topic and your credentials are amazing, very powerful. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about both your credentials and tell us who you are and why this matters to you? Sure, of course. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the show, Maureen. It's a fantastic show. And I I love the idea of leadership innovation, because I think that's so critical today, the kinds of transformation that companies need to engage in in order to be successful in this radically changed world that we're living in, requires a really innovative approach to leadership. The leadership that you can do during normal times when you're just trying to keep an operation going, grow it a little, optimize it, is so much easier than what companies have to do today. So I I love your show and I'm very appreciative of you having me on. My career for 25 years now has been doing something very, very interesting. I'm very fortunate to have had the chance to work with dozens and dozens of Fortune 1000 brands on this issue of digital transformation, even before we were using that buzzword of calling it digital transformation. But the reality is that the nature of business and the way in which you serve your customer and enable your employee and engage with your distributors and your suppliers, all of that has been so radically changed by digital, or at least potentially radically changed. And for most companies, they see their competitors leveraging the opportunities to do dramatic and in some cases, extremely radical things that are creating massive disruption in almost every industry. It started in certain industries, the travel industry, the financial services industry, but now there's no industry that's not radically touched by this. And so my career has really just been about working with brands to figure out, okay, how do we adapt? How do we make a better experience for the customer as their expectations are changing? And how do we operate a business successfully in a changing world? And that's been a fascinating journey because what you need to do has changed year after year after year. The way we were dealing with this 10 years ago is quite different than today. And, and I love that. I love to be in a, in a field where I'm constantly uh, having to learn new things and solve new problems. Beautiful. And we are delighted to have you on the show and to share your experience with our listeners. So customers today expect the brands that they deal with to deliver outstanding and seamless digital experiences. If your brand is failing to thrive, you need to take what's core to your value proposition and adapt it, perhaps significantly, for a world filled with customers who have digital at the center of their lifestyle. Almost everyone has transitioned to significantly more digital. So to your point in your introduction, what we were doing has accelerated in many cases by decades, and it happened very quickly. So Howard joins me today to discuss his experiences in assisting large organizations in winning digital customers. Let's start by considering the digital impact. Many once-loved brands are becoming increasingly irrelevant and ultimately disappearing. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened? And I assume your work is well beyond the obvious that some of us look at. 
and importantly for our listeners, how did we think about people who are owning and running businesses of any scale? What do we need to be thinking about so we're not the next blockbuster? Maybe start by asking the question, why do businesses succeed at all? Why is a business successful in the first place? And usually it's because it's doing a very good job of meeting the needs of its customers and doing it in a way that is competitive with others that are also trying to meet the needs of those same customers, right? Pretty straightforward. The challenge that companies face today is that those needs are changing. And to the point that you made, I think quite articulately, they're changing. They were already changing rapidly before we got hit by COVID. And that only accelerated, as you said, the speed of change. So businesses operate in a world in which the number one thing that they need to do, meet and exceed the needs and expectations of their customers, is a moving target. And it's a target that's moving faster and faster. Now, compound that with the fact that most large organizations in particular aren't really designed for rapid movement. There are these kind of big aircraft carrier type size organizations, mm-hmm. you know, they're headed in one direction. If you want to change the strategy, change the business model, change your business processes, that can be done, but it's usually done slowly, meticulously, carefully. And that's problematic in a world in which the change needs to be rapid. So I think this is the biggest problem that I see that our organizations face, which is recognizing the need to change rapidly, which sometimes they don't. And once they recognize it, and you know, when I say the organization recognizes it, that's kind of a misnomer because an organization itself can't recognize anything. It's just an abstract construct, right? Only people can recognize things. And so what tends to happen at most organizations is some people recognize it. Some people don't recognize it. Some people think it's urgent. Some people think, yeah, it doesn't have to happen right now. And so getting to the point we were talking about earlier about innovative leadership, inspiring people and getting them to really commit to change is one of the greatest challenges that companies face today. And, you know, there's this natural human tendency to not be that enthusiastic about change, at least for a lot of people. I think there are people who are exceptions. I think I'm actually one of those people. I love change. But we may find the person who's the chief digital officer of a big company, or he may or she may be like that, that kind of minority person who thrives on change. But I have to always remind myself that that's not how most people are. Most people have a different mindset about it. Therefore, if I'm going to try to help people get excited about change, I have to recognize I have a big mountain to climb (laughs) and make sure I'm both appealing to their sense of what's the burning platform? Why is the change essential? Because not changing often sounds a heck of a lot better. And then secondly, get them to be on board with the actual change I'm proposing. Because even if I could convince you that we need to change, you might not agree with what I'm suggesting we change in two. So I have to persuade. So, So there's a lot of that. And that's why I think leadership is such a key part of being successful at digital transformation. You know, I love the distinction that many of us want to change some things. Most of us want to change somebody else. (laughs) Right. Like, so you get to go in and change me to make me be more successful. Right. Um, And so in lots of ways, for me, it is connecting the vision of what's possible with the individual humans, precious souls who show up and try to do the best they can every day. And they're in the midst of so many things that one more change is sometimes too much. And even though I have the luxury of managing my life in many ways, this has been a week that just one more thing, I went out to speak at a conference and my car had a flat tire. And it was one of those like, I don't have a minute this week to fix the tire. How do I get from here to there? 
I just wanted to make the distinction that the work you're doing is so important in both helping people attend to what is digital transformation and that you're helping them lead through the process of doing it. Because I think a lot of people say it's important and then they dump something and go away. I think that's right. It reminds me, you reminded me of a cartoon that I, I can't remember whose cartoon it was, but there's a person behind a podium and he's speaking to an audience and he says, who wants change? And everyone raises their hand. And then he says, who wants to change? And nobody raises their hand. (laughs) (laughs) And I think you're right. I think psychologically there's that. We all would love to see things get better, but don't make me change my habits. And you know, people get ingrained behaviors and great habits. And, and just like someone who wants to quit smoking or someone who wants to lose weight or anything else, we tend to resist even when it seems like that change would lead us to someplace better. So in my book, I devote sort of about a fifth of the book, the last, there's five main sections of the book. And the fifth is all about leading change. In my whole career, I've worked on a lot of big digital transformation projects, some amazing successes that I'm you know super proud to have been a part of, and some pretty big failures too. And when I look at the ones that are failures, it's usually not a failure of technology or a failure of marketing. There may, of course, have been issues in those areas. It's almost always fundamentally a failure of leadership. Yeah. The technology is pretty good. And when you hit a problem, you can fix it. Yeah. You yeah. Know, you're going to hit problems. You're going to fix them. If you have the right leadership, if you have people who are determined, if you mm-hmm. have people who are resourceful. On the other hand, if you fail as, as a leader, so much of being a leader in these types of programs, you know, it's really being a politician and recognizing that there's always going to be somebody whose personal interests are not being met by what you're changing. And they may be senior and they may be having meetings to strategize about how to cut you out of the needs. That's the reality in the corporate world. And so you need to be able to be you know, on the offense and defense. And this is part of the leadership game. You know, It's inspiring people, it's setting expectations, and then it's dealing with attacks. I came out of Accenture 20 plus years ago and worked on large enterprise-wide transformations. And that was what sparked me to go into this business. Because the technology, not to minimize that there's a lot of work in creating and aligning the technology, but the technology is the technology. And some of it has been around for a long time and it's really good. And yet the best technology projects can still derail because of humans, because of leaders specifically, often whose interests aren't aligned with the success of the project. Absolutely. So what is customer love and why do we care? Customer love, I think, is the single most important and beneficial asset that a business can cultivate. Fundamentally, what it means is the emotional connection your customer has to your brand, to your product, to your company. We see over and over those brands that are able to establish that kind of extraordinary enthusiasm and emotional passion for their brand see more revenue, more growth. Customers are less price sensitive. They're more quick to adopt new products. I mean, look at Disney, for example, a brand that has an enormous amount of customer love that comes toward it. Not from everybody on the planet, of course. There are people who hate Disney. But from Disney's customers, from their core audience, tremendous emotional connection. Well, they launched in, I think, late 2019, if I recall correctly, Disney Plus, a new streaming service to compete with Netflix and Hulu and others. Within three months of launching Disney Plus, they had 50% as many paid subscribers as Netflix, a company that had been in the business for 10 years, and about the same number as Hulu, 
the second player in the market and one again that had been there for many, many years. That's one example of the power. Look at Apple, another loved brand that has seen over 400% stock appreciation over the last five years. So it's very easy to find these correlations between the brands that have this passion from their customers or those that are just tolerated, right? Sure, I'll fill my car up at Chevron because you know it's on the corner near my house and all that, but do I care about Chevron? If Chevron were to vanish from the earth tomorrow, how would I feel about it? I'd be like, well, I guess I'll have to turn left on Bayberry instead of right because that's where the BP station is. You know, it really doesn't mean anything to me versus how would people feel if Disney vanished from the planet tomorrow? or um, Harley Davidson, or any of the other brands that really have achieved that level. So there's a continuum. The more of that kind of passion you can cultivate in your customers, the better your business results are going to be, generally speaking. And so to me, it's a huge focus, measuring that kind of emotional connection to customers. Can you connect the dots between what Disney does and digital transformation? I get on the surface that they launched a digital product. I don't know what Harley Davidson's doing. I don't know what Apple's doing that specifically connects the digital transformation to build on the brand love they have. Sure, sure. Let me start by answering a different question, if I might, which is what is digital transformation anyway, right? Because this is a big buzzword right now, but like so many buzzwords, it can lack sometimes clarity of what it really means. So here's what it means to me. The world has changed and consumers' lifestyles have been changed by digital. Whatever type of business you're in, and whether it's B2C or B2B, your customers, not to mention your employees and other constituents, are almost all living a lifestyle with digital at the center. They're sleeping with the phone beside their bed. They're checking that device hundreds of times a day. And when surveyed, today's consumers will say if they had to choose between working an extra day of the week or giving up their phone, they'd work an extra day. Heck, a third of people when surveyed would give up sex rather than give up their phone. So this is core to people's identities and lifestyle and how they do almost everything in their lives, from dating to shopping to financial stuff to religion, I mean, every aspect. So that's the digital transformation of the world. And there ain't nothing we can do about it. The world has changed dramatically and your customers change. So to me, when I talk about digital transformation, usually though, it's in the concept of something inside of that, the digital transformation of a company. And what that really means is to change the experience that that company is delivering to its customers, the value proposition, and also very often employees and others, to align with that digital world, to align with a world that has changed, with the needs and expectations that have changed. It doesn't only mean doing things that are digital. It's not only about websites. It's not only about apps. You know, I call my book Winning Digital Customers, not doing really good digital stuff. You know? And the reason is because to me, all of these people, customers who are living a lifestyle with digital at the center, that's what I mean when I say somebody is a digital customer. For example, look at Taco Bell. Here's something they've done recently. They have, of course, online ordering for pickup of Taco Bell food. And they are now remodeling the restaurants to have two drive-through lanes, one of which is a traditional drive-through lane where you drive up and tell them what you want and they prepare the food. And the other is a drive-through lane only for people who've already ordered their food and have been texted to say that the food is ready. So obviously, they don't want those people to wait in line behind people who are trying to decide between a tostada and a burrito or whatever. So this is the kind of change which is not 
It's not their app. They're ripping up asphalt in their parking lots and remodeling their physical locations in order to meet the needs of today's digital customers. And so to me, that's the idea. The idea is the reason that the people love a brand. And in the book, I provide a formula for how to architect and engineer customer love. The reason that people love a brand though, in aggregate, is the experience you provide. And digital transformation is about making that experiential change and all of the supporting things you need to do in order to make that possible, such as technology change, process change, organizational structural change, and those types of things. So this really does then, like we did with ERP, Enterprise Resource Planning. So the software changes drove changes to most business processes, at least on the back of the house. It sounds like for our listeners that digital transformation will have the same scope and scale for many organizations. Well, I think much greater, actually. And I think that what you described with ERP was absolutely right. To me, it's also the tail wagging the dog a little bit. To me, it's not so much about the software changing the process. It's about starting from saying, what is the experience? Most companies today, if you look at the actual experience of their customer, there are probably a lot of places where they're disappointing the customer, letting them down, confusing them, frustrating them. I don't say that to be negative. I say that because we get hired all the time to go in and look at major leading brands that are super successful. And yet, if you look at what the customer's experience is, you discover all kinds of points of pain. Fortunately, their competitors are also creating those same problems with their customers. But as competitors solve those points of pain or new upstart digitally centric, digital first companies create new vision of how to deliver that same service, whether it's insurance or fashion or doctor's appointments, whatever it may be there's great risk to those traditional companies because there's a less painful, more delightful way to do it. And so understanding what those key points of pain are and being able to solve them and create a more delightful experience, that's the dog. (laughs) That's the thing, right? And then the question is, well, in order to deliver that experience, that's the part of the iceberg that sticks up above the surface of the water. You might say, well, in order to really give my customer the personalization they want, the convenience they want, the accuracy of information about the process, the status of their order or whatever maybe that they want, wow, I'm going to need a different kind of technology. I'm going to need to change my process. I might need to upgrade my ERP system. I might need to change my whole business model. All of that to me is the stuff that is in support of the more fundamental value generating component, which is not software or technology at all, but is the actual experience of that customer, because that's what creates emotion. So I worked with a client, in fact, yesterday, as they were developing their vision and what they came to, and it's a hotel chain, they want to provide an exceptional experience and value to guests, customers, and employees, especially in a war for talent time and to the community. So I was really excited to see experience-centric along with value and that that went across all of their stakeholders so that they can deliver an employee experience that is also constructive. So employees aren't running around behind the scenes doing all kinds of crazy stuff to deliver value to customers, especially not for this client, but I see with other clients where the employees that are doing all that stuff could never be a customer because they don't make enough money. So treating the employees as valued stakeholders and extending customer experience. Well, absolutely. That's fantastic. And a couple of thoughts about that. The first is employee experience has never been more important, especially now because we're in a labor shortage. Mm -hmm. And 
if you think it's annoying to go, let's say, on your bank's website and try to, I don't know, send a bill payment, and let's say on that particular bank's website, that's a frustrating process that takes more steps than it should and is confusing. Imagine if you had to do that all day long every day. <laughs> How would you feel then? And employees who work places where the tools that they're given have that level of frustration associated with them, it's hard to retain those employees. It's hard to keep them in a good mood, which means they're less productive. It means you know they're less likely to stay, all those types of things. So as important as it is to get customer love, it's perhaps arguably even more important to get employee love. Just like with everything, there's many facets to it. But I tell you, if you pull those strings, many of them come back to digital because digital is the driving force in our world today. It's not the only thing, but it's just such a huge thing that if you're not doing it well, then you can't possibly be doing a good job for that employee, even if there's, you know, I don't know, snacks in the coffee room or something else. You know, I like that as, you know, that's good. But when I remember working at Disney, man, there are the coffee rooms at every, I probably gained 10 pounds working at Disney, you know, because of all the great snacks. But in the end, if you frustrate and annoy and confuse people day in and day out, that's the emotional landscape they live in at work. And I've worked a lot with Tony Robbins over the years. And one of the things he says is the quality of your life is the quality of your emotions. If you're frustrating and annoying your employees all day long, how long are they going to want to live with that? Before we go into anything more on the how-to, do you have another example of stories of customers that are doing this well? Oh, there are so many, so many. And you know, most people, if you ask an average person to give you some examples, they'll talk about Amazon and the fact that I can just reorder from my Kindle. In fact, it's so easy to order products from Amazon over the Alexa that we had to turn it off because my five-year-old would go on and start ordering toys and saying, oh, send me that, send me that. And they would show up at the door, right? That's how easy they've made it. Companies like Netflix that obsess about removing every piece of effort to make it as hyper convenient as possible. Something like 80% of all videos watched on Netflix are due to Netflix's recommendation, right? You don't go find what you want to watch. You watch what they tell you to watch. They've taken the work out of figuring out what to watch. And then when one episode is over, do you have to click the next button to watch the next episode? No. It gives you a little countdown timer and says, in five seconds, I'm starting the next episode. So you can literally plop yourself on the sofa and watch Netflix all day long without having to put barely any effort in at all. Now, of course, I'm not saying that's a good way to live your life. But in terms of companies that are taking the effort out and are making an experience that customers love, you know, that's key. But I think what can happen, many of the companies that I work with are what you'd call great legacy brands, whether it's NBC or AAA or Avis or ADP, JP Morgan Chase. They're not companies that are mostly born in a digital world. And sometimes there can be some demoralization where people say, oh, these digital companies, the Facebooks and the Googles you know, and the Ubers and the Airbnbs, they got it all figured out. They got to start fresh and make a great digital experience. But I'm working with this legacy system and legacy company, and it's much harder to transform. But we can also look around and see many very successful examples of brands that are not Netflix, Uber, Amazon, et cetera. Let's talk about Walmart for a second. Walmart is the number two largest online retailer in the United States and delivers an outstanding digital experience in many different regards. Couldn't be a more classic pre-internet legacy meat and potatoes type retail company. Look at HBO, an entertainment company that was way pre-digital, right? And focused their distribution exclusively through MSOs and through cable companies. And now is one of the leading players in direct-to-home video content. Look at the New York Times. 
that has done a tremendous job of not only delivering their content through digital means, but creating whole new businesses, subscription models and other things, recipes and other areas. So there are many good examples. And I talk about a number of the books that we can look to and say, it's not only these digital companies that are great at it, but it's also true that those legacy companies that are succeeding are the exception. And there are a great many legacy companies that are still struggling to kind of catch up. And that's really very much who my book is targeted at, frankly, providing them a kind of a five-step process for how to go from where you are, wherever that is, to where you need to be so that you can stand toe-to-toe in a competitive world with whoever you're competing with and have customers love you and not see you as a, a legacy, old, stodgy company, but a company that's delivering the needs of today's digital customers just as well as anybody else or even better. Can you give us a high level of your five-step process? Sure, absolutely. There's three basic things we need to accomplish, and the five-step process is going to enable us to do that. The first is to make sure that we are reliably and consistently meeting the needs of those customers. And digital customers have different needs than your customers might have had five years ago, 10 years ago, et cetera. Secondly, to at least occasionally or periodically delight those customers. Go above and beyond what they expect and need from you. And then lastly, to stand for something that those customers care about so that there's a sense of human connection between your brand and them, whether that's a political statement like Nike or of a more spiritual statement like someone like an Amazon or a Disney has. They don't take a stand on politics, but they really stand for an ideal that a lot of people share. And so the five steps start with, number one, understand your customer. Most companies have some level of understanding and insight into their customer. It's hard to run a successful business without it, but I would say the average company is a five out of 10. And a lot of the work that we do and a lot of the discussion on this topic in the book is about what are the specific tactics and techniques that you can use? Many of them are research techniques to make sure you really understand who are your different customers? What do they care about? What are their hopes and dreams? What are their fears? And what are their areas of pain that they're experiencing today that if you could help overcome them, you could differentiate yourself to them in a much better way? So that's the first step. And if your goal is to get someone to love you, you know, you better understand that. Otherwise, you're just guessing. The second step is to map the journey. First of all, as sort of an extension of understanding the customer, making sure that we don't just understand them as an individual, but we understand what is their actual experience today? When they go to, let's say you're a Baskin Robbins and you make birthday cakes for parties, right? What is the journey that they're on when they're ordering a birthday cake for a party? What are the steps that they go through? What are the things that you're doing that make that great for them, that they love? And what are the things that are part of the experience that they have in going through that process with you that are frustrating, confusing, annoying, disappointing, et cetera? Most companies have an understanding of how it's supposed to work, but they may not have really gone through the rigor of going, what really happens if I spent a day in a Baskin Robbins store watching people come in and order birthday cakes? Would I be surprised about what I would actually learn compared with what they think back at headquarters is what actually happens? In that particular case, I don't know. I haven't done that particular type of research, but that's the sort of thing that we're doing a lot of. And what tends to happen is a lot of unexpected things come up. And then once you understand where you're doing great with the customer, because hopefully you are in some regards, and where you're creating pain. And even where there's pain the customer doesn't blame you for, you still have the opportunity to 
use that as a springboard to envision a much better experience. And, and let me give you an example of that last point. Uber, revolutionaries, ground transportation, of course, and likewise, they're copycats like Lyft. If you look at some of the pain that they took, I live in New York City, you know, I have to hail a taxi cab with my arm out and wait and maybe get splashed by a puddle of a, of a car coming by, you know, there's all kinds of things that make are so much better when I can push a button on my phone and an Uber will just come get me. And that was maybe something that I considered a frustration about getting a New York City taxi cab. But let's look at another thing that Uber does. When I arrive at my destination in my Uber, I just get out of the car. In the old days, I had to take, oh, I don't know, 30 seconds and pay the driver. Now, never in the past did I think to myself, this is so annoying. I shouldn't have to pay the driver. When I accepted it, it's just part of the deal. You arrive and you got to pay the driver. When all of a sudden someone gives me an experience where I can just, as soon as that car stops, you know, I'm always on the go, right? Running from thing to thing. All of a sudden they pull up and I just get right out of the car and go. To me, that's a delight. They've just solved a point of pain that I wasn't even blaming my prior ground transportation company for. And that's the sort of thing that makes a customer not just have less negative feelings towards a brand, but to have more positive feelings because you've taken away pain that I wasn't even blaming you for. Amazon creates their Amazon Go stores, right? If I go to a store and I have to wait 20 minutes to check out and pay, I, you know, I probably am annoyed with the store. But if it takes five minutes, I, I kind of expect that I'm going to get in line and I'm probably going to be behind someone. I'm not upset. But Amazon Go all of a sudden says, hey, just get all your stuff and just walk right out. Similar to the Uber example. These are ways to create delight. So creating the vision of what's that future customer experience that will create delight and love, that's the second part of that journey mapping. And then the third is to build it, right? Because what happens is you create this vision of this optimal, ideal, North Star customer journey. And it can be quite daunting, by the way, because sometimes you look at that and you say, well, that's, that's what the customer experience should be. But holy cow, we're all the way back over here, providing this other, much more painful experience. And it's almost sometimes reminds me of that old joke, is it the Smothers Brothers, where like a guy pulls up at the gas station and he says, how do I get to such and such? And the gas station attendant thinks for a minute and he says, oh, you can't get there from here. And I think that a lot of times people feel when they look at that massive vision of what the future customer experience really needs to be, they find it daunting. But the key to the third thing is, well, you break that up into pieces, into projects. We have to work on the website, on the app. We need a new database or data warehouse. We need a CRM tool. We need a, a chatbot, whatever it is. And the process of building all of those individual products is the third step of the process to build the products. And we, we talk in the book extensively about principles of design thinking and how to make sure those products really come together in the right way to form a seamless customer journey. So those are the first three. I'll pause there, but then I'm happy to talk about the last two if you'd like as well. Those are really helpful because, well, several things to understand the customer experience and to step back and consider what's possible. Because so often we get in the business of fixing a problem, not imagining as your example of Uber, that it's now possible to do friction-free or one-touch and exit rather than to the grocery store checkout or the store checkout where I have to go do the self-checkout and scan each thing. And invariably something doesn't scan right or I have to weigh a tomato or something. And it's still a long and annoying process. So if someone could imagine what would make my life better and just fix things back to the customer love, I would love to be a customer of those companies. And the good news is that if you do the right kind of customer research, you come back with tons of insights about pain points 
we could come up with a very quick and easy solution to that problem. And, and those are the really the delightful things when you realize that there are some things that don't require that much work. And that actually is the fourth of the five areas of uh, the, the process, because while you're trying to build that ambitious vision of the future, that's really going to enable you to stand toe to toe with anyone else in the world that's competing in your market. Very often, there are little things you can fix, opportunities to optimize, because getting to that big North Star vision might take a year, it might take two years, it might take five years. It depends on the nature of what you're trying to do. And often, customers aren't that patient, and boards of directors aren't that patient, investors aren't that patient. So you need to be able to deliver quick wins along the way. And in that fourth part of the book, I go into a lot of specific tactics to find the quicker and easier things to fix. It's a little bit more like you know a plumber repairing a pipe rather than redoing the pipe in the whole house. But I find companies need to do both at the same time. You need to patch up what you've got and make it better as you go in ways that are quick and easy. And you know some of the things we find to fix might seem small, but if you fix 100 small things every quarter, by the end of two years, you've just fixed 800 small things. You've made a substantial dent in the things that were creating negative customer experience. And then the last of the five is where we started, which is leadership. And looking at the fact that different type of leadership is required, different types of organizational structures, strategies to overcome resistance to change, different types of skills in terms of being inspirational. That's the fifth part, which is to lead the change. And those last two, by the way, happen throughout the entire process. Optimize what you've got as a foundation for everything. And it really all actually begins with leadership and ends with leadership because that's the foundation for everything else. It's really helpful to, again, you commented on this earlier, the human change, the leadership, as well as the customer experience really creates sustainable change. And I love the idea, having worked on these large projects that deliver results two years down the line and millions, hundreds of millions of dollars in and organizations, leadership changes, economic changes, they lose patience. So if you're seeing these continual, even small impacts, it helps energize everyone on the team, as well as the bigger stakeholders funding the thing to stay engaged, because it seems like this wait two years or three years and and see some big thing. We don't have the patience for that anymore. Yes. And actually, I think this is one of the reasons why many large companies haven't succeeded more in the digital world. If you look at some of the biggest successes, the most valuable companies in the digital age, let's look at somebody like Airbnb or Skype or something like that. Very often, it took them two, three plus years of spinning, of figuring it out, of trying different things, of losing money before they started on that sort of hockey stick of growth. People often don't think about it that way because very often people didn't have awareness of them when they were struggling like that. You started to become aware of them when they started to have that growth curve. And so it's easy to have that perception that, gosh, you know, I heard about Airbnb one day and within a couple of weeks, it seemed like everyone was using Airbnb. Yeah, because you heard about Airbnb three and a half years in after they struggled and they, nobody heard of them. But if you look at most companies, what would they say about an innovative digital way of selling travel inventory? That had been going for two years and had done nothing but lose money. They'd probably say it's time to put this thing out of its misery and cut our losses. And I think that that lack of patience is a huge barrier to large companies being able to. Um, and there's other barriers too, by the way. You know, I often say that you know, if Google and I've, I've said this at many media companies that if Google had been started at a major media company, it would have been killed within a year. They would have said, "Oh, people are suing us for spidering their sites," and 
that level of willingness to take risk, willingness to tolerate the time it takes to get to success. And the irony is the large companies are the ones that have the resources to afford to have that kind of patience. But you know, it's what we started talking about. It's emotion as much as anything else. It's fear. Gosh, I'm going to put more money into this. I'm going to look like an idiot that I kept putting money into something. And people get emotional rather than looking at what is the formula for actual success in this space. And very often, it's years of iteration. It's not an appealing thing to say when you're trying to convince somebody to fund your project initially, (laughs) but it's the truth. I get that. And that we've seen millions of startups that didn't make it. And we've seen the Googles and brilliant successes. If I'm sitting in a large company that can afford to fund it, and you come to me and Dan comes to me and somebody else comes to me and says, hey, we've got these programs and this will be the next Netflix or something. How do I, as that leader, know where to place my bets Or do I look at it like a portfolio and say, I'm going to place a small bet on a lot, but you said Google would be killed. Yeah. Well, first of all, the last thing you said, I think is right. You have to look at it as a portfolio. If you think that you as a leader can look at three different ideas and know for sure which one will be successful, then you're kidding yourself. Either that or you're some kind of a genius, the likes of which I've never met. But I think there is a much more practical approach, which is, yes, on the one hand, You want to take a portfolio approach. You want to invest in many things. It doesn't mean you should fund everything, of course. You want to look and understand, is this solving a problem? Sometimes people come up with ideas and they fall in love with their own ideas. But that idea, hey, virtual reality would allow us to create something that does A, B, C, D, and E. Okay, cool. But like, does this solve some sort of problem out there? Is there somebody who's sitting around in pain, like we talked about before, where this would get them out of pain? Because if you don't see that connection between a problem that some market has and this thing that somebody is proposing, then that's not likely to be successful unless you just see it as an R&D project. We say, well, we haven't really figured out what the application is. We just want to continue to experiment with virtual reality. That's fine. A certain level of investment, just playing while you're playing with technology, you want to have other people who are researching customer pain points. So at some point, you can bring the people who are playing with technology together with the people who are learning about customer pain points, they can ask the question, is any of this stuff we're playing with apply to any of these problems we're learning about? And it's when you find a connection and you say, ah, you know, here's a problem people are having. People hate to wait in line at restaurants. Here's a way we can text them when their table is ready, rather than having them having to stand by the hostess stand or whatever it may be, right? I certainly think that queuing in general is something that is annoying and My prediction is 10 years from now, there will be no lines, no lines, no queues anywhere. Why are we still doing this? Why are we still putting human bodies in a row to indicate who's next? It's preposterous. There's all kinds of reasons why that's bad. It's annoying to people. And just imagine every minute your customer stands in line at your store, it's time they're not walking around your store finding something else to buy. We've just got to completely eliminate that. And so if you realize you have that point of pain, someone has a technology, do it great. That's the point at which if you're an executive, you could say, ah, I see the pain. I see a technology solution. And you obviously want to ask the question, will this work? Someone can say, well, I have a teleportation device. People don't like having to commute to work. This device will teleport them immediately to work. Well, that sounds great. But then the second question I want to ask is, what is the likelihood that this solution is actually going to work? Is it practical? You know, are there downsides, et cetera? And is the cost something that mm-hmm. the customer is willing to bear? So these are some of the key things I think you want to look at. 
And you want to be willing to say, okay, if there's at least a reasonably good likelihood, then you take a stage gate process and you say, okay, what's the minimum viable product? What's the simplest version of this concept that we can get into the hands of customers and see if this concept really has legs? Let's not spend $100 million building the perfect version. Let's spend $100,000 getting some simple version in the hands of customers and see how it does. And in that way, you're not betting long-term, you're betting on little short-term hops and then you just keep checking back in and figure out what's working and put more money where it seems worthwhile. You've shared a lot of information. What else, from a practical perspective, would you like our listeners to walk away with? <laughs> I wrote a 400-page book. I was trying to write a 200-page book, but I just couldn't do it. So, so much, right? I mean, there's so much to say about these topics. It's a very rich topic and one that I'm very passionate about. It's hard to know what else because it, it kind of depends where you are in the process and, and what challenges you're encountering. I would certainly want to encourage folks to, to check out my, my book and the book website at winningdigitalcustomers.com where you can actually download the first chapter for free. I put a lot of content out on the web as well that addresses lots of different things. Happy to answer any other questions you may have, but gosh, you know, there's just such a, such a wide field. I, I really wouldn't even know what to pick. If you look at all the projects you've done over the last 25 years, do you have a favorite? Something that you are the most proud of? Gosh, you know, I don't think I do. There's some projects that I'm just really happy about, for sure. There's many. I'll mention two or three real quick. We redesigned the AAA roadside assistance app, and we've made it much easier to get help when you need it and to not have to call. It's funny because early in the summer, my daughter, who was a new driver, <laughs> she hit a curb. She must have been going 40 miles an hour on a freeway off-ramp or something, you know. Anyway, she hit a curb and she, she damaged the tire and she damaged the rim. And so anyway, bottom line is she needed a tow. So she called me up, dad, I, I crashed the car. What am I going to do? And I, and I drove over to where she was and I had occasion myself to use the app that we had created, which I'd never actually used. I'd, I'd gone through it, of course, but I'd never used it when I was in a real roadside assistance situation. And I was so happy because it worked so well. I pushed a, a tap that said, yes, come get me. You know, it was like three taps. It said that the, the truck was going to be there in five minutes, dispatch process work. And I had this great experience and I, and I had this moment of just real joy because I realized that, you know, how many people have we affected? How many people have we helped with something like that? So maybe actually I'll just mention that one example because there's many others like that. Different projects are exciting for different reasons. We're working a lot on stuff with Airbus, the satellites. That's really kind of cool stuff to work on, things like that. But the end of it for me is when I know that people's lives are being made better, even, you know, in some small way by something we've done, and then it's happening 24-7. You know, it's not like a, a play, like I, my background originally was in theater. You do a show, but it ends, you know. When you create something and you know that 24-7 people are needing roadside assistance and they're, they're getting some benefit from the thing that we played a role, together with our client, of course, and others in creating, to me, that's one of the most satisfying. Thank you for sharing that. Howard, thank you so much because the title of your book says it all. Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance. And not only for large businesses, but also for smaller organizations who will differentiate themselves and stay or die based on their ability to do this. It is absolutely crucial. And I love that you have created a process that businesses, specifically large, but also I plan to go through it and see what I can do to give my customers a better experience. I won't make the same kind of investment that AAA did, but I want my customers to be delighted. I want to find solutions that will solve problems they didn't know they had or I didn't know they had. 
for anyone owning and running a business that's trying to find the next edge to stay relevant, this is absolutely crucial information. Yes. Well, that's wonderful. Well, let me know how it goes as you apply these principles and if I can do anything to help. Thank you. You've given us your information. Tell us one more time the name of the book, your your website, and what you're giving away so people know where to start. Absolutely. So if you want to learn more about my book, uh, it's called Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance. You can find it on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles and Apple Books and all the usual places. There's also a website for the book at winningdigitalcustomers.com. If you go there, you can download the first chapter for free. If you want to try it before you buy it, it's totally fine. If you want to learn more about my consulting company, it's called From the Digital Transformation Agency. And you can learn more about us at from.digital. And I post a tremendous amount on LinkedIn. I do several live casts a week on different topics of this nature. So I'd love you to join and, and listen into some of the content, or I post articles and infographics and other stuff as well. Wonderful. And we will include some of your information also in our newsletter so people can see visually as well as have the opportunity to listen to us talking. Wonderful. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We live in a time of massive change and what each of us does and how we live and who we are in this context influences the future that we create and co-create. So Howard, thank you for creating a better future. I actually used AAA this week when I got the flat tire. Oh. I am also a user of the services you've created. and That's great. And did you use the, the app or the mobile web and not call? Actually, my partner took care of it, so I don't know what he did. But what I know is I got a text within an hour that said, I can drive my car this week. <laughs> Done. So AAA and your app made my life easier. Fantastic. Go AAA. <laughs> Go AAA. And to our listeners, listen, share, and put these in practice. Join us next time.